You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of Yahweh which Yahweh spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For Yahweh has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth-Aked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive, and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth-Aked, forty-two persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him, and he said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for Yahweh. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out, according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers, and all his priests. Let none be missing, 
for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who is in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of Yahweh here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any one of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And Yahweh said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days Yahweh began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites, and the Manassites from Aror, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is, Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, and all that he did, and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz his son reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was twenty-eight years. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 806 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, January 27th, 2024, and we just read 2 Kings chapter 10. We'll talk about 
Matthew Henry's commentary on this chapter. I'm going to phone a friend in Matthew Henry on this one. In just a minute, we'll talk about that one. We'll also talk in this episode after we have explored the commentary on the chapter about the largest religious group in America. You may be surprised to find out who makes up the largest religious group in America. Amazon Prime has a new TV show as well, which you might be interested to hear about, find out about if you haven't yet. And lastly, where we'll spend the bulk of our time at the end of this episode, we will explore and read Richard Ackerman's January 9th piece at AmericanReformer.org titled Reconquista, Plausible and Necessary. Is this what we should hope for? Should we hope for a reconquering of our culture, our civilization, our country, so to speak, religiously? for Christianity. We'll get into that. We will, and this is a good time, having just read 2 Kings chapter 10, to get into that topic. But like I said, first, before we get into those items of interest, let's look at what Matthew Henry had to say about the chapter of 2 Kings we just read. To quote from blueletterbible.org, Matthew Henry nonconformist minister, we have in this chapter a further account of Jehu's execution of his commission. He cut off all Ahab's sons, all Ahab's kindred, Ahab's idolatry, his zeal against this. He took Jonadab to be witness to, summoned all the worshipers of Baal to attend and slew them all, and then abolished that idolatry. A short account of the administration of his government, the old idolatry of Israel, the worship of the calves, was retained, verses 29 and 31, tell us that. This brought God's judgments upon them by Hazael, with which his reign concludes, verses 32 to 36. Matthew Henry writes, We left Jehu in quiet possession of Jezreel, triumphing over Joram and Jezebel, and we must now attend his further motions. He knew the whole house of Ahab must be cut off, and therefore proceeded in his bloody work, and did not do it deceitfully, or by halves. He got the heads of all the sons of Ahab cut off by their own guardians at Samaria. Seventy sons or grandsons Ahab had, Gideon's number, interestingly, we saw that in Judges 8.30, in such a number that bore his name, his family was likely to be perpetuated, and yet it is extirpated all at once. Such a quiver full of arrows could not protect his house from divine vengeance. Numerous families, if vicious, must not expect to be long prosperous. These sons of Ahab were now at Samaria, a strong city, perhaps brought thither upon occasion of the war with Syria as a place of safety, or upon notice of Jehu's insurrection. With them were the rulers of Jezreel, that is, the great officers of the court, who went to Samaria to secure themselves, or to consult what was to be done. Those of them that were yet under tuition, had their tutors with them, who were entrusted with their education in learning, agreeable to their birth and quality, but, it is to be feared, brought them up in the idolatries of their father's house, and made them all worshippers of Baal. Jehu did not think fit to bring his forces to Samaria to destroy them, but, that the hand of God might appear the more remarkably in it, made their guardians their murderers. 
He sent a challenge to their friends to stand by them. Verses 2 and 3. You that are hearty well-wishers to the house of Ahab and entirely in its interests, now is your time to appear for it. Samaria is a strong city. You are in possession of it. You have forces at command. You may choose out the likeliest person of all the royal family to head you. You know you are not tied to the eldest unless he be the best and meetest of your master's sons. If you have any spirit in you, show it and set one of them on his father's throne and stand by him with your lives and fortunes. Not that he desired they should do this or expected they would, but thus he upbraided them with their cowardice and utter inability to contest with the divine counsels. Do if you dare and see what will come of it. Those that have forsaken their religion have often, with it, lost both their sense and their courage and deserve to be upbraided with it. Hereby he gained from them a submission. They prudently reasoned with themselves. Behold, two kings stood not before him, but fell as sacrifices to his rage. How then shall we stand? Verse 4. Therefore they sent him a surrender of themselves. We are thy servants, thy subjects, and will do all that thou shalt bid us, right or wrong, and will set up nobody in competition with thee. They saw it was to no purpose to contend with him, and therefore it was their interest to submit to him. With much more reason may we thus argue ourselves into a subjection to the great God. Many kings and great men have fallen before his wrath for their wickedness, and how then shall we stand? Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? No, we must either bend or break. This was improved so far as to make them the executioners of those whom they had the tuition of. Verse 6. If you be mine, bring me the heads of your master's sons by tomorrow at this time. Though he knew it must be done, and was loath to do it himself, one would think he could not expect they should do it. Could they betray such a trust? Could they be cruel to their master's sons? It seems, so low did they stoop in their adoration to the rising sun that they did it. They cut off the heads of those seventy princes and sent them in baskets a present to Jehu, verse 7. Learn hence not to trust in a friend, nor to put confidence in a guide not governed by conscience. One can scarcely expect that he who has been false to his God should ever be faithful to his prince. But observe God's righteousness in their unrighteousness. These elders of Jezreel had been wickedly obsequious to Jezebel's order for the murder of Naboth, 1 Kings 21.11. She gloried, it is likely, in the power she had over them. And now the same base spirit makes them as pliable to Jehu and as ready to obey his orders for the murder of Ahab's sons. Let none aim at arbitrary power, lest they be found rolling a stone which, sometime or other, will return upon them. Princes that make their people slaves take the readiest way to make them rebels, and by forcing men's consciences, as Jezebel did, they lose their hold of them. When the separated heads were presented to Jehu, he slyly upbraided those that were the executioners, yet owned the hand of God in it. One, he seems to blame those that had been the executioners of this vengeance. The heads were laid in two heaps at the gate, the proper place of judgment. There he acquitted the people before God and the world. You are righteous, verse 9, and by what the rulers of Samaria had now done, comparatively acquitted himself. 
I slew but one. They have slain all these. I did it by conspiracy and with design. They have done this merely in compliance and with an implicit obedience. Let not the people of Samaria, nor any of the friends of the house of Ahab, ever reproach me for what I have done, when their own elders and the very guardians of the orphans have done this. It is common for those who have done something base to attempt the mitigation of their own reproach by drawing others in to do something worse. Hmm. It's a fascinating observation, by the way. That is a very, very important observation. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Understand this. <laughs> Two, he resolves all into the righteous judgment of God. Verse 10, the Lord hath done that which he spoke by Elijah. God is not the author of any man's sin, but even by that which men do from bad principles, God serves his own purposes and glorifies his own name, and he is righteous in that wherein men are unrighteous. When the Assyrian is made the rod of God's anger and the instrument of his justice, he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, Isaiah 10.7. He proceeded to destroy all that remained of the house of Ahab, not only those that descended from him, but those that were in any relation to him, all the officers of his household, ministers of state, and those in command under him. Called here his great men, verse 11, all his kinsfolk and acquaintance who had been partners with him in his wickedness and his priests or domestic chaplains whom he employed in his idolatrous services and who strengthened his hand that he should not turn from his evil way. Having done this in Jezreel, he did the same in Samaria. Verse 17, slew all that remained to Ahab in Samaria. This was bloody work and is not now in any case to be drawn into a precedent. Let the guilty suffer, but not the guiltless for their sakes. Perhaps such terrible destructions as these were intended as types of the final destruction of all the ungodly. God has a sword bathed in heaven, which will come down upon the people of his curse and be filled with blood, Isaiah 34, 5 and 6. Then his eye will not spare, neither will he pity. Providence bringing the brethren of Ahaziah in his way, as he was going on with this execution, he slew them likewise, verses 12 to 14. The brethren of Ahaziah were slain by the Arabians, Second Chronicles 22, 1, but these were the sons of his brethren, as it is there explained, verse 8. And they are said to be princes of Judah and to minister to Ahaziah. Several things concurred to make them obnoxious to the vengeance Jehu was now executing. One, they were branches of Ahab's house, being descended from Athaliah, and therefore fell within his commission. Two, they were tainted with the wickedness of the house of Ahab. Three, they were now going to make their court to the princes of the house of Ahab to salute the children of the king and the queen, Joram and Jezebel which showed that they were linked to them in affection as well as in affinity. These princes, 42 in number, being appointed as sheep for the sacrifice, were slain with solemnity at the pit of the shearing house. The Lord is known by these judgments, which he executeth. Second Kings 10, verses 15 to 28, Jehu, pushing on his work, is here courting the friendship of a good man, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. Verses 15 and 16. This Jehonadab, though mortified 
to the world and meddling little with the business of it, as appears by his charge to his posterity, which they religiously observed 300 years later, not to drink wine nor dwell in cities, Jeremiah 35, 6, etc. Yet upon this occasion went to meet Jehu, that he might encourage him in the work to which God had called him. The countenance of good men is a thing which great men, if they be wise, will value and value themselves by. David prayed, let those that fear thee turn to me, Psalm 119.79. This Jehonadab, though no prophet, priest, or Levite, no prince or ruler, was, we may suppose, very eminent for prudence and piety, and generally respected for that life of self-denial and devotion which he lived. Jehu, though a soldier, knew him and honored him. He did not indeed think of sending for him, but when he met him, though it is likely he drove now as furiously as ever, he stopped to speak to him, and we are here told what passed between them. One, Jehu saluted him, he blessed him, so the word is, paid him the respect and showed him the goodwill that were due to so great an example of serious godliness. Two, Jehonadab assured him that he was sincerely in his interest and a hearty well-wisher to his cause. Jehu professed that his heart was right with him, that he had a true affection for his person and a veneration for the crown of his Nazareteship, and desired to know whether he had the same affection for him and satisfaction in that crown of royal dignity which God had put upon his head. Is thy heart right? A question we should often put to ourselves. I make a plausible profession, have gained a reputation among men, but is my heart right? Am I sincere and inward with God? Jehonadab gave him his word, it is, and gave him his hand as a pledge of his heart, yielded to him. So giving the hand is rendered Second Chronicles 30 verse 8, concurred and covenanted with him and owned him in the work both of revenge and of reformation he was now about. Three, Jehu took him up into his chariot and took him along with him to Samaria. He put some honor upon him by taking him into the chariot with him. Jehonadab was not accustomed to ride in a chariot, much less with a king, but he received more honor from him and from the countenance he gave to his present work. All sober people would think the better of Jehu, when they saw Jehonadab in the chariot with him. This was not the only time in which the piety of some has been made to serve the policy of others, and designing men have strengthened themselves by drawing good men into their interests. Jehonadab is a stranger to the arts of fleshly wisdom, and has his conversation in simplicity and godly sincerity, and therefore, if Jehu be a servant of God and an enemy of Baal, he will be his faithful friend. Come then, says Jehu, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord, and then thou wilt see reason to espouse my cause. This is commonly taken as not well said by Jehu and as giving cause to suspect that his heart was not right with God in what he did and that the zeal he pretended for the Lord was really zeal for himself and his own advancement. For one, he boasted of it, and spoke as if God and man were mightily indebted to him for it. Two, he desired it might be seen and taken notice of, like the Pharisees, who did all to be seen of men. An upright heart approves itself to God and covets no more than his acceptance. If we aim at the applause of men and make their praise our highest end, we are upon a false bottom. 
Whether Jehu looked any further, we cannot judge. However, Jehonadab went with him and, it is likely, animated and assisted him in the further execution of his commission. Verse 17, destroying all Ahab's friends in Samaria. A man may hate cruelty and yet love justice, may be far from thirsting after blood and yet may wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Psalm 58.10 Contriving the destruction of all the worshippers of Baal. The service of Baal was the crying sin of the house of Ahab. That root of this idolatry was plucked up, but multitudes yet remained that were infected with it and would be in danger of infecting others. The law of God was express that they were to be put to death, but they were so numerous and so dispersed throughout all parts of the kingdom and perhaps so alarmed with Jehu's beginnings that it would be a hard matter to find them all out and an endless task to prosecute and execute them one by one. Jehu's project, therefore, is to cut them off altogether. By a while, by a fraud, he brought them together to the temple of Baal. He pretended he would worship Baal more than ever Ahab had done. Verse 18, perhaps he spoke this ironically, or to try the body of the people, whether they would oppose such a resolution as this and would resent his threatening to increase his predecessor's exactions and say, if it be so, we have no part in Jehu nor inheritance in the son of Nimshi, but it rather seems to have been spoken purposely to deceive the worshipers of Baal, and then it cannot be justified. The truth of God needs not any man's lie. He issued a proclamation requiring the attendance of all the worshipers of Baal to join with him in a sacrifice to Baal, verse 19 and 20, not only the prophets and priests, but all throughout the kingdom who worshipped Baal, who were not nearly so many as they had been in Elijah's time. Jehu's friends, we may suppose, were aware of what he designed and were not offended at it. But the bigoted, besotted Baalites began to think themselves very happy and that now they should see golden days again. Joram had put away the image of Baal, chapter 3, verse 2, if Jehu will restore it, they have what they would have and come up to Samaria with joy from all parts to celebrate the solemnity. And they are pleased to see the house of Baal crowded, verse 21, to see his priests in their vestments, verse 22, and themselves perhaps with some badges or other to notify their relation to Baal, for there were vestments for all his worshipers. He took care that none of the servants of the Lord should be among them, verse 23, this they took as a provision to preserve the worship of Baal from being profaned by strangers. But it was a wonder that they did not, by this, see themselves brought into a snare and discern a design upon them. No marvel if those that suffer themselves to be deceived by Baal, as all idolaters were by their idols, are deceived by Jehu to their destruction. He gave order for the cutting of them all off, and Jehonadab joined with him therein. Verse 23. When a strict search was made, lest any of the servants of God should, either for company or curiosity, have got them, lest any wheat should be mixed with those tares. And when eighty men were set to stand guard at all the avenues to Baal's temple, that none might escape, verse 24, then the guards were sent in to put them all to the sword and to mingle their blood with their sacrifices in a way of just revenge, as they themselves had sometimes done, when, in their blind devotion, 
they cut themselves with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out, 1 Kings 18.28. This was accordingly done, and the doing of it, though seemingly barbarous, was, considering the nature of their crime, really righteous. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The idolaters being thus destroyed, the idolatry itself was utterly abolished. The buildings about the house of Baal, which were so many and so stately that they are here called a city, where Baal's priests and their families lived, were destroyed. All the little images, statues, pictures, or shrines which beautified Baal's temple with the great image of Baal himself were brought out and burnt, verse 26 and 27. And the temple of Baal was broken down and made a dunghill, the common sink or sewer of the city, that the remembrance of it might be blotted out or made infamous. Thus was the worship of Baal quite destroyed, at least for the present, out of Israel, though it had once prevailed so far that there were but 7,000 of all the thousands of Israel that had not bowed the knee to Baal and those concealed. Thus will God destroy all the gods of the heathen and, sooner or later, triumph over them all. Concerning verses 29 to 36, Matthew Henry writes, Here is all the account of the reign of Jehu. Though it continued 28 years, the progress of it answered not to the glory of its beginning. We have here God's approbation of what Jehu had done. Many, it is probable, censured him as treacherous and barbarous, called him a rebel, an usurper, a murderer, and prognosticated ill concerning him, that a family thus raised would soon be ruined. But God said, well done. Verse 30, and then it signified little who said otherwise. One, God pronounced that to be right, which he had done. It is justly questionable whether he did it from a good principle and whether he did not take some false steps in the doing of it. And yet, says God, thou hast done well in executing that which is right in my eyes. The extirpating of idolaters and idolatry was a thing right in God's eyes, for it is an iniquity he visits as surely and severely as any. It was according to all that was in his heart, all he desired, all he designed. Jehu went through with his work. Two, God promised him a reward that his children of the fourth generation from him should sit upon the throne of Israel. This was more than what took place in any of the dignities of royal families of that kingdom of the house of Ahab. There were indeed four kings, Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, and Joram, but the last two were brothers, so that it reached but to the third generation, and that whole family continued but about 45 years in all. Whereas Jehu's continued in four besides himself and in all about 120 years, note, no services done for God shall go unrewarded. Jehu's carelessness in what he was further to do, by this it appeared that his heart was not right with God, that he was partial in his reformation. One, he did not put away all the evil. He departed from the sins of Ahab, but not from the sins of Jeroboam discarded Baal, but adhered to the calves. The worship of Baal was indeed the greater evil and more heinous in the sight of God, but the worship of the calves was a great evil, and true conversion is not only from gross sin, but from all sin, not only from false gods, but from false worships. The worship of Baal weakened and diminished Israel and made them beholden to the Sidonians, and therefore he could easily part with that, but the worship of the calves was a public idolatry, 
was begun and kept up for reasons of state to prevent the return of the ten tribes to the house of David. And therefore, Jehu clave to that. True conversion is not only from wasteful sins, but from gainful sins, not only from those sins that are destructive to the secular interest, but from those that support and befriend it, in forsaking which is the great trial, whether we can deny ourselves and trust God. Two, he put away evil, but he did not mind that which was good. Verse 31, he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel. He abolished the worship of Baal, but did not keep up the worship of God, nor walk in his law. He had shown great care and zeal for the rooting out of a false religion, but in the true religion, one, he showed no care, took no heed, lived at large, was not at all solicitous to please God and to do his duty, took no heed of the scriptures, to the prophets, to his own conscience, but walked at all adventures. Those that are heedless, it is to be feared, are graceless, for where there is a good principle in the heart, it will make men cautious and circumspect, desirous to please God and jealous of doing anything to offend him. Two, he showed no zeal. What he did in religion, he did not do with his heart, with all his heart, but did it as if he did it not, without any liveliness or concern. It seems he was a man that had little religion himself, and yet God made use of him as an instrument of reformation in Israel. It is a pity, but that those that do good to others should always be good themselves. The judgments that came upon Israel in his reign, we have reason to fear that when Jehu took no heed himself to walk in God's law, the people were generally as careless as he, both in their devotions and in their conversations. There was a general decay of piety and increase of profaneness, and therefore it is not strange that the next news we hear is, in those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. Verse 32, their neighbors encroached upon them on every side. They were short in their duty to God, and therefore God cut them short in their extent, wealth, and power. Hazael, king of Syria, was above any other, vexatious and mischievous to them, smote them in all the coasts of Israel, particularly the countries on the other side of Jordan, which lay next him, and most exposed. On these he made continual inroads and laid them waste. Now the Reubenites and Gadites smarted for the choice which their ancestors made for an inheritance on that side of the Jordan, which Moses reproved them for, Numbers 32. Now Hazael did what Elisha foresaw and foretold he would do, yet for doing it God had a quarrel with him and with his kingdom, as we may find, Amos 1, verses 3 and 4. Because those of Damascus have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron, Therefore, says God, I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Lastly, the conclusion of Jehu's reign, verses 34 to 36. Notice is taken, in general, of his might, but because he took no heed to serve God, the memorials of his mighty enterprises and achievements are justly buried in oblivion. And that is the end of Matthew Henry's commentary on 2 Kings chapter 10. A lot of really good insights and observations brought to us by the acclaimed minister, nonconformist minister. You can see, <laughs> I trust, why I would say I would like to see what Matthew Henry had to say. It's a difficult chapter. It's rough stuff, and it doesn't have a whole lot of 
parallel in Scripture. I mean, there are here and there other instances where similar sorts of things are mentioned or alluded to, but in this case, it explicitly says that God was pleased with what Jehu had done, except that he didn't attend to worship of Yahweh instead. He purged the worship of Baal, but he didn't follow after Yahweh or attend to the word of God, obeying the commands of God more generally. And that actually brings us, interestingly, to John Knox's post at Not to Be from the day before yesterday. The largest religious group in the U.S. Who do you suppose is the largest religious group in the U.S.? Roman Catholics, Protestants, so-called evangelicals, even if we can't agree about what the evangelion is, Christians in a general sense. Historically, it's been Christians in a general sense. I do believe if you add the Catholics and Protestants together, apparently we're still ahead, but they're separated. Got to keep them separated. And it's not even 50% of the country anymore. But then that is to say, it's still significantly people who identify as Protestant or Roman Catholic, and yet an even larger group than either Protestants or Roman Catholics are those who don't believe in anything, or that's what they say anyways. From NPR, quote, when Americans are asked to check a box indicating their religious affiliation, 28% now check none. A new study from Pew Research finds that the religiously unaffiliated, a group comprised of atheists, agnostic, and those who say their religion is nothing in particular, is now the largest cohort in the U.S. They're more prevalent among American adults than Catholics, 23%, or evangelical Protestants, 24%. John Knox, not his real name. I trust over at Not to Be comments. Now, if you add the Catholics and Protestants together as a Christian bloc, they're still ahead, but it's not even 50% of the country anymore. We are now living in a post-Christian America, and NPR can hardly contain its joy. Here's another quote from NPR. Gregory Smith at Pew was the lead researcher on the study titled Religious Nuns in America, who they are and what they believe. He says the growth of nuns could affect American public life. Quote, we know politically, for example, Smith says, quote, that religious nuns are very distinctive. They are among the most strongly and consistently liberal and democratic constituencies in the United States, end quote. And that could change electoral politics in the coming decades. Yeah. Of course, right? Of course. That stands to reason. I have no trouble believing that. In fact, I would have assumed it. And I think this is a chicken and egg sort of question. And also it's self-reinforcing. It's a downward spiral. The more trust you put in the government to act as functionally your savior and your God, the less you have any felt need for God to be God, to regard God as God, to regard Jesus as Savior, but then also at the same time, the less you look to God to be God, the less you regard Jesus as Lord, the more you're going to have an appetite to find somebody or something to make up the difference. And being for big government, being on board with the Democrat agenda, it gives a lot of people a sense of purpose and belonging that formerly they would have derived from being religious, being a Christian in particular. They would have said in generations past, I go to church and I listen to the sermon 
and I help out every now and then when we have a special project together. I gather together with other Christians. Those form the core of my friends group. My family does this all together, and so it is a shared experience for my family. I read my Bible. That's where I find out what it is that I should be thinking is true and what I should be feeling about life as it's happening around me, what I should be doing with my life. Instead of that, increasingly, you have people who look to the progressive agenda, and they see the progressive agenda as a better alternative, a preferable alternative, and they not coincidentally regard conservative Christians, traditional, historic, orthodox in their doctrine, Christians, as weird and backwards and getting in the way and the cause of troubles. And this is also not a coincidence. The more you have the response of none, I would say the more polarized we're going to be politically as a country. But it's interesting because, say for instance, having just read the commentary of Matthew Henry's on 2 Kings chapter 10, you would imagine when you drive out the worship of Baal, for instance, what you get is more worship of Yahweh because that's what Ahab and Jezebel were driving out. They were pushing out the worship of Yahweh, the prophets of Yahweh. They were murdering them. They were trying to stigmatize Yahwists, so-called. That's what the Wikipedia article for Jezebel calls them, the cult of the Yahwists. And so you would imagine that having de-institutionalized, having purged the worshipers of Baal, you would get a return and a resurgence of the worshipers of Yahweh. But instead, particularly in the case of Jehu, but then Matthew Henry reasonably supposes that a lot of Israelites would have followed suit with Jehu's example. And the generations that followed after him also setting an example, perhaps, as they followed their father's example or their forefather's example, a lot of Israelites probably became very lax in their devotion to Yahweh, if they had any devotion to Yahweh at all. They probably became very irreligious. They were probably, a lot of them, reporting none. Another quote here from NPR. At first glance, nuns appear to be evenly divided by gender, but digging deeper into the data shows that men are significantly more likely to say they're atheist or agnostic, whereas women are more likely to describe their religion as nothing in particular. Smith says that's consistent with other research as well, which shows Women tend to be more religious on average than men. Also, interestingly, women tend to skew much more, unmarried women tend to skew much more for voting for big government. I think this is not for no reason. I think both of these together are related to how the psychology of women, how the way that women are wired is different than men, especially unmarried women are more likely to vote for Democrats. They're more likely to favor a big government that offers to provide for them and to protect them. Because why? Because they're probably in this day and age living on their own or with some friends. And that's a very insecure, very vulnerable feeling. If the government says you're going to be protected, you're going to be provided for like a husband typically would. One, they may not feel as much of a sense of urgency to get married, but also for another thing, they may not feel any special sense of urgency to be religious because both a husband and God Almighty in their life are not as necessary as they see it. I don't need no man. 
very easily can be adapted to, I don't need no God. I'm just doing my thing. When you don't have any felt needs, when you don't feel particularly unsafe and you're not too badly deprived of the things you want in life, you at least have the necessities for the most part. If you're a woman, that's understandable. Not good, but it's understandable how you would be more likely to report nothing in particular. It's not a strong commitment. Men, on the other hand, and this is my speculation, men for quite some time have had the new atheists ringing in their ears, the Sam Harris types. Richard Dawkins was a big deal when I was just coming into my 20s. Lots of young men thought Richard Dawkins sounded really smart. And at the same time, he talked really tough towards religious people. And maybe he was more successful than we would like to admit in convincing a lot of young men that if you want to be smart or sound smart or look smart, if you want to be tough or look tough at least, publicly mock and humiliate the religious folks, especially Christians. And maybe also too, men are more likely to want to be assertive and to say, this is what I'm about. This is where I stand. Women, it's more of a negative thing, nothing in particular. But for men, it's more of an assertive thing. I am agnostic, and here are all the reasons why. I am an atheist, and here are all the reasons why. And let me tell you about my Lord and Savior, the Big Bang. Nothing. <laughs> you know, nothing. Everything came from nothing, but how's that, right? That doesn't even make any sense. It takes more faith to believe that. This may change, right? It may change. I hope that it does. I hope that there's a revival of Christian faith in this country, and we should pray for that. And we should labor for that. If God has given us a task to do, if the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, we should want more of those who say they're content being agnostic or atheist to come to a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should want them to be introduced to the lover of their soul who has forgiven their sins if they will confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. They would have life. They would be free. Are they free right now? Or is there just an illusion of freedom? An illusion of all my options are still on the table when you say, none, not religious. I think so. There's an illusion of liberty, but actually it's just death. It's just nothingness. Maybe not a complete death of everything you are and everything you're about, but to the extent that you lean into this profession, you're not living you're not actually free. You're a slave to nihilism. You're a slave to apathy. And ironically, you're a slave to pleasing yourself, but then that's a very lonely thing. Love your neighbor as yourself flows directly from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you might say, ah, but how does that jive, Garrett, with 2 Kings chapter 10? You have the killing of all these people because there were religious differences, because some people worshipped Yahweh and some people worshipped Baal, and that doesn't seem like that's very loving. Oh, but wait a second. You downplay how awful and evil, not just towards God, but towards their fellow man, the worshippers of Baal had been. The case of Naboth is by no means the only case. Like That was the only thing that happened under Ahab and Jezebel with the full participation of the likes of the elders of Jezreel. That's just an example. That's just one example to indicate to you what sort of condition 
the country was in. How rulers of the people, people with authority and power, great and small, all the way up to the level of the king, down to the level of the elders of a city, were corrupt, envious, covetous, malicious, cruel. They didn't have religious toleration under the cult of Baal. Far from it. But it takes humility. It takes admitting that God knows better than we do, which ironically is how you get wise. If you think you're especially wise when you believe that you're wiser than God, then you're actually, ironically, very foolish. And when you admit that who could know better than God, who could know more what is the actual situation and how the universe is so composed and so ordered than God, that's when it becomes possible for you to be wise, truly wise. God opposes the proud. Don't forget that, nuns. And don't forget that those who claim to faith in Christ, as you're interacting with those who say they don't have any religious affiliation, don't forget that God gives grace to the humble. If you don't feel well-equipped to be able to articulate the faith, study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, but also maybe lean into that humility because he gives grace to the humble. It's not a bug. It's a feature of your relationship with God and your relationship with those around you, that you would embrace your finitude. You would embrace that you don't know everything. You don't have the answer to every question, but do you love these people? Do you love God and do you love your neighbor as you love yourself like God has called you to, like Christ set the example for us to? If so, then maybe all the more because of the genuineness of your faith being tested, being evident, you will win some in spite of themselves. In due time, they'll be won over by your good behavior in Christ. And if God has given you the words to say, well, then those must have been exactly the right words, even if there was no immediate response. Just keep on being faithful and doing what you ought to do. Attend to widows and orphans in their need. That's religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable, James says. And keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, really, when we're talking religion, A lot of people get the wrong idea that Christianity is instead of that. Actually, it's right there in the letter from James in the New Testament. James, half-brother of Jesus. Religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable is this, to attend to widows and orphans in their need and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If that's what you're about, if that's what you're doing, and that's what following Christ looks like in your individual life and also in your community life with other believers as part of the local church, edifying, building them up, being built up, praising God together. Maybe not right away, but in due time, those who mock you, those who shake their heads, those who say all manner of evil against you will be won over by your good conduct. Now, on the other hand, as soon as I've said that, (coughs) it's important to know, (laughs) you have to, you just have to know this going into it, that some people have their wires crossed so badly that they'll see you doing good things and they'll just insist. They're just sure that the good things you're doing consistently, you're actually consistently doing what's not so good. And if you do anything bad at all, even though they think that what's bad is good, typically as a matter of course, if you haven't completely renounced your Christian faith, all they'll care about is, oh, you you did this one thing, you slipped up here, And that's why you want to be blameless. You aim for blamelessness and being above reproach, keeping your way pure, not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Keeping yourself unspotted from the world is very important. 
But there are some who have their wires crossed so badly that they're just sure good is evil and evil is good. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Up is down and down is up, et cetera, et cetera. And those type of people you've got to watch out for as well. And don't set your expectations too high or kick yourself too hard if you never win them over uh, because you just might not. It, It might be there is a seared conscience there that it would actually take a straight up miracle to heal. And only God himself is going to be able to open their eyes. And in the meantime, they're fully committed to tearing you down and humiliating you and making you look like the villain that they're just sure you are. And whether they're right or they're wrong, they're sure that they're right and that you're wrong. And they're of their father, the devil, uh, put simply. There are definitely a lot of people who are Satanists just for the chuckles because it makes Christians uncomfortable. Or as I think, there are a lot of people who start out that way and it's more so to tweak Christians that they're upset with, Christians who disappointed them or that they always resented or that they never really felt accepted by. And maybe it starts with a just LARPing, mocking fun. And in due time, maybe it turns into something actually more serious, more grave. And I mean that figuratively and quite literally, quite materially. Amazon Prime, you may have heard, has a new animated series about heaven, hell, and how the devil is actually the good guy. Again, John Knox over at Not The Bee has the deets, January 18th, 2024. I'm going to play for you cut one here. This is the trailer for a show called Has Been Hotel, which premiered, oh, I suppose a week ago yesterday. And I'm going to play for you the audio, of course. I think there's enough for you to go on with the audio to get the gist. And then I have some thoughts. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Once upon a time, there was a glowing city protected by golden gates known as heaven. It was ruled by beings of pure light, angels that worshipped good and shielded all from evil. Lucifer was one of these angels. He was a dreamer with fantastical ideas for all of creation, but he was seen as a troublemaker by the elders of heaven, for they felt his way of thinking was dangerous to the order of their world. So he watched as the angels began to expand the universe in their ways. From the dust of earth they created Adam and Lilith, equals as the first of mankind, but despite this, Adam demanded control, and Lilith refused to submit to his will. She fled the garden. Drawn in by her fierce independence, Lucifer found her, and the two rebellious dreamers fell deeply in love. Together, they wished to share the magic of free will with humanity, offering the fruit of knowledge to Adam's new bride, Eve, who gladly accepted. But this gift came with a curse, for with this single act of disobedience, evil finally found its way into Earth. With it, a new realm of darkness and sin, and the order heaven had worked to maintain was shattered. As punishment for their reckless act, heaven cast Lucifer and his love into the dark pit he had created, never allowing him to see the good that came from humanity, only the cruel and the wicked. Ashamed, Lucifer lost his will to dream, 
But Lilith thrived, empowering demonkind with her voice and her songs. And as the numbers of hell grew, so did its power. Threatened by this, heaven made a truly heartless decision that every year they would send down an army, an extermination, to ensure hell and its sinners could never rise against them. But Lilith's hope remained, and her dream was passed down to their precious daughter, the Princess of Hell. Don't worry, Mom. I'll make you proud. And that's Amazon these days. <laughs> it wasn't enough for them to corrupt Tolkien's work with the Rings of Power series. Now they are just going full-on Satanism. Uh, first, <laughs> Wheel of Time, then Rings of Power, and now this. I guess that's the progression. You, you spoil actually good stories, and then it comes out that you think Lucifer was the hero <laughs> and uh, just misunderstood, and you present a sympathetic view of him, and uh, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. John Knox over at Not The Bee has a couple of highlighted tweets, one from J. Chase Davis with just the word abomination, Ben Zeisloft, who writes frequently for The Daily Wire, tweeted out something a little more substantive. Satan is crawling out of the darkness and openly promenading in the light, only to be embraced by people who once feared God. Choose this day whom you will serve. And then he quotes Isaiah 520, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And that's what the show is. John Knox, however, comments, it's just a bunch of heretical Gnostic myths that have been around for thousands of years, nothing original, but still deeply contemptible and destructive. This is going to elicit chuckles from most people who would want to watch it, who would be drawn to it at first, but it's going to draw some people into, I'm convinced, a more serious look at it. And they're going to say, ah, but isn't this based on something? What's this based on? Oh, interesting. And they're going to get drawn in further and further and further. And then if they have an emotional resonance with the material, the source material for the show, they may at some point actually encounter Satan and his demons. Uh, I personally believe that not just God is real, but that there are actual angels and demons. They are beings and that the devil can present himself as an angel of light, just like Paul writes about in the New Testament. He says, even if I or an angel come to you preaching a different gospel, don't believe it. We're warned that even the devil, even Satan, can present himself as an angel of light. We see this also with Jesus after he's baptized in the River Jordan by his cousin John the Baptist. He goes into the wilderness and doesn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights, and Satan comes to tempt him. And what does Satan do? Routinely, he offers some legitimate things as if they are his to grant the Son of God. And he also quotes scripture. And the thing you have to remember is that the things Satan is offering, they're not his to give. And when he quotes scripture, he may be quoting what God has actually said, but he's twisting it to his purpose. And that's another reason why you have to study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth so that you can be like the Bereans who are praised in the book of Acts. The Berean Jews are said to have been of a more noble character than the Jews of Thessalonica because when they heard Paul and Barnabas preaching, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the evangelion of Jesus Christ, they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And it turns out, yes, actually, this all checks out. But when you're not in the habit of searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so, then you can be taken off course. You can be drawn into myths, cleverly devised myths, and you can also be drawn in by those who are unreliable guides, those who are blind guides, and also those who are just straight up false teachers. This is predicated on very old false teaching, and it's going to be packaged as entertainment. But then, like I've been saying here recently, you have to understand that entertainment, to entertain in the more traditional sense, meant to play host to someone, literally a person who was passing through perhaps and needed a place to stay. You'd offer them some food and you'd offer them one of your guest rooms perhaps, and you would entertain them. And over time, only more recently, have we come to think of entertaining strictly in the sense of doing what's fun or watching theatrical performances live or on the screen, listening to music, listening to the radio, listening to whatever. But what you're doing is you're entertaining somebody else's ideas. You watch the show, and if you're not watching carefully, and I wouldn't recommend watching it at all, but if you're not watching carefully a show like this, and you're the majority of people who would watch a show like this, and they would think it's really funny and fun, and that's different, it may start out by chuckles, you entertaining yourself with their ideas, and it might at a certain point mean not just that you've entertained, but you've said, ah, just live here forever. And you might, with solemnity, like the worshipers of Baal, find yourself actually believing these things, giving yourself over to these things, devoting yourself to these things, living according to lies. So take care, right? That's the big idea. With this whole report about the largest religious group in the U.S. being those who say they're not religious at all, as much as we might pray for a religious revival, a revival of Christian faith in this country, we should pray for that. We should work for that. Another possibility is that the 28%, and if it grows even more, of Americans who are saying they're not religious at all might give themselves over to Satanism. We're seeing after-school Satan clubs pop up in recent years all across the country, not coincidentally on the heels of Ten Commandments monuments being pulled out of courthouses, prayer and Bible reading being pulled out of public schools. You know, it might be in the case of Jehu, for instance, he purges the worship of Baal, and instead of giving himself over and devoting himself to Yahweh, he's just not particularly religious, and he doesn't really observe what it is that God has commanded, and so also the people for a time are that way as well. And then in due course of time, maybe it's like when Jesus says, sometimes demons are cast out, one demon is cast out, and seven more demons come back in down the road, finding that the house, so to speak, has been swept and cleaned. And now the end situation for the person who was freed from a demonic influence is worse than it was at the start. They said, we're not religious because we don't like all this stuff that we associate with Christianity. It's repressive. It's harsh. doesn't make sense. It's unreasonable. So we just don't believe anything. And then the way that Satan operates, he offers them everything they could possibly want if they will serve him, if they will bend the knee to him. 
if they will agree with him and line up on his side in the final battle. And before you know it, they're actually religious again, but they're religious about making war on the saints. And we know that'll come at the very, very last. And maybe this is another sign that it's coming, or maybe this is just one of the hiccups which has happened here and there over thousands of years. Time will tell. But as to the show, I was curious, what does IMDb have to say in the Parents' Guide? Just because, you know, why wouldn't we want to look up what all is actually included in this? Even just reading some of the bullet points, it's disturbing. The Parents' Guide will tell us that in Australia, this show is rated MA 15 plus, Brazil 16, Singapore M18, Taiwan 16 plus. In the US, it's TVMA or on HBO Max 18 plus. The uncensored video version is TVMA. The YouTube rating is 16 plus, but then I'm still young enough to know and to remember that eh, you're going to get some 15 year olds, 14 year olds, 13 year olds who are thinking that watching a show like this a couple of years early makes them mature, right? They're ahead of their time. They're in a hurry to grow up and they're going to get the false impression that watching a show like this, they're actually accelerating the maturation process. They're going to be an adult sooner. And this is not what makes you an adult, just to be clear. Even if you are an adult, <laughs> this is not what confirms your maturity by any stretch. Under the sex and nudity section of the Parents' Guide at IMDb, it's given a rating of moderate violence and gore, moderate profanity, severe alcohol, drugs, and smoking, moderate frightening and intense sequences, moderate under sex and nudity. One of the main protagonists is a gay porn star and drag queen. There's a building called Porn Studios. There are multiple blatant sex jokes and innuendos. Sex and prostitution are mentioned and shown in various episodes. Sex is very frequently mentioned and joked about. Nudity and porn are frequently mentioned and shown on screen. However, no on-screen genitalia is shown. Sexual harassment and sexual abuse frequently occur. This is usually played for laughs, but sometimes is handled in a serious manner. BDSM, sex dungeons, and sex toys are frequently referenced, mentioned, and shown. Angel Dust's pimp is physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive to him. Intercourse is sometimes shown and sometimes includes furries, bondage, or sex toys like strap-ons, ball. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to stop there because this doesn't even need to be mentioned. This is shameful even to mention. You get the point. Violence and gore. There is violence throughout, mostly in the form of bombs, explosions, guns, etc. Despite the fact that the characters are technically already dead, it's implied that they can still be killed by angels. A demon gets crushed by a giant rock. A small pool of blood is briefly seen. One part of the pilot involves a turf war in which Angel Dust and Cherry Bomb fight Serpentius and his army of sentient eggs. Multiple eggs are obliterated into puddles of yellow blood by use of bombs, guns, and baseball bats. The pilot opens with the aftermath of a yearly extermination. It shows many dismembered corpses of demons, but most are silhouetted. Or in the background, one corpse's head is torn off by another demon and put into a cart full of other body parts. And another corpse is shown having a spear removed from its head as a group of demons descend onto it. It's not shown what happens next, but it is heavily implied that the demons are eating the corpse. So it's really violent, right? It's, it's really, really violent. Uh, profanity. I will just skip that whole section, but it is severe. They use every word they can possibly reach for so as to 
desecrate man, degrade the audience, alcohol, drugs, and smoking. Several drug addicts are seen in the show, whether it's a main character or a background character. Characters drink alcoholic beverages, but rarely get drunk. Some minor characters and background characters are seen with cigarettes. Angel Dust, who is one of the main characters, gets these drugs with his name on them from a vending machine. A character attempts to drug Angel's drink. Characters are seen snorting drugs. Characters frequently talk about getting high or drunk, so on and so forth. So very violent, extremely sexualized. The language is very profane and degrading. And all of this played for laughs, but then not just laughs. What's the moral? What's the moral of the story? That you should sympathize with the devil and you should sympathize with the demons, I suppose, because who did this to them? Who made them this way? That's all, and you heard it in the trailer, the fault of the elders of heaven. Eh, Ultimately, let's be real. You're blaming God. This is trying to make a case for God being the ultimate oppressor. And this has always been the biggest issue with critical theory. Ultimately, if the claim is that inequality proves oppression, then whoever has the most power, the most property, must be the most oppressive. If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then God must be the ultimate oppressor. If he's all-powerful, he must be the ultimate oppressor. If he's not revealing everything to you that you want to know, and he knows everything and doesn't tell you everything, well, then that too is framed as oppressive. How dare he? But it's arrogance. It's hubristic. It is actually just straight up doing and being and embracing what it is that got Satan kicked out of heaven in the first place. If people don't take this seriously and they don't think that this is actually Satanism, in visual form, being preached and promoted, then I think maybe they don't really actually have the right idea. What are are they expecting, right? What are they expecting that Satanism is going to come like? People do go in for worship of demons. The worship of Baal, featured in the case of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. When they get really desperate, they start cutting themselves as they're crying out to Baal till the blood is gushing out of them. They're mutilating themselves in a desperate attempt to get Baal's attention, to do blood magic, essentially. People will so totally give themselves over and it becomes who they are. It replaces who they are that their sense of purpose and belonging at a certain point is okay with and it just accepts being totally destroyed. It starts out with just a little compromise, give up a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but what you get, right? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you what? The opportunity to become like God, knowing good and evil. That was the original temptation. The show is saying what Lucifer was offering was free will. Well, then in that case, you're presenting Lucifer in the mold of Prometheus in the ancient Greek myths. Prometheus bound by Aeschylus. I just recently read. You're presenting Lucifer as Prometheus who just wanted to give mankind fire. And Zeus was angry, but Zeus is the villain. Zeus is the one who is being so unfair. Zeus doesn't love you like Prometheus loves you. God doesn't love you is the claim being made here, like Lucifer loves you. Lucifer's the one who really loves you. And if he's a little bit ugly and twisted and scary and dark and even what you might call evil, well, you know what? That is just what God did to him. It starts with the premise, the underlying premise being God is not good. He's holding out 
Or, as a matter of fact, he's tormenting you. Like the director played by Ed Harris in The Truman Show. Crank up the winds. Crank up the waves. More, more. Crank it up. I created you. No. No. It starts with unbelief. It starts with a rejection of the truth about God and a suppressing of the truth about God. And it works from that premise. But it's an underlying premise. And it's an underlying unbelief that's a pre-committed desire to justify oneself and justify one in disobeying God, in rejecting his authority over us, we commit ourselves to destruction. Lucifer is not the hero of the story, and he's not misunderstood as this show is purporting. Oh, that poor fellow. No, you may not fully understand him, but don't let a show like The Hasbin Hotel be your intro, be your tutor. No, no, no. God is good. All Satan is really offering you in the end is death. And part of how he's going to accomplish it, if you give yourself over to him, is he'll convince you that that's actually what you want. Don't fall for it. But if you do, if you will, then it's on your own head, be it. You're choosing that. You already have free will. You had free will from God. You didn't need to prove that you had free will by giving yourself over to the devil. You know, essentially, that's the bluff. And that's the bluff that Satan tries with Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 days and 40 nights. If you are the Son of God, wait, 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 wait. I don't have anything to prove to you. I do not need to prove to you, Satan, that I am the Son of God, Jesus essentially says back. But he quotes scripture to him because it doesn't need to be a, I am this, as if he even needs to tell him that, much less demonstrate for him. He quotes scripture back to him and quotes it rightly. And that's what we should do too. That's the example set for us in Christ, by Christ. That's the wise course. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But that brings us to our last topic for this episode, an article by Richard Ackerman from January 9th of this year at AmericanReformer.org, sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. The title of the article is Reconquista, Plausible and Necessary. And let's just read the entirety of the article, it should take us something like five minutes, and then we'll comment on it. Ever since hundreds of young traditionalists, mainline Protestants, trudged through the snow to post 95 theses against liberalism on the doors of hundreds of mainline Protestant churches this past Reformation Day, their movement, Operation Reconquista, has gained much criticism from the liberal elites in mainline denominations. However, there has also been criticism from the right fearing that Reconquista is sending sheep into packs of wolves. In his article, The Mainline Question, Philip Derrida writes, quote, The mainline churches are not only unworthy of saving, but also there is no realistic path for saving them. End quote. He goes on to critique the necessity and plausibility of retaking mainline denominations. However, there are several key details he did not address in his criticism of the movement. Most criticisms from the right of Reconquista, start by assuming that most, if not all, churches in mainline denominations are completely apostate. If that were true, Derrida's criticism would be entirely sound. And yet, in every single broadly liberal mainline denomination, whether the Presbyterian Church, USA, United Methodists, Episcopalians, or even the United Church of Christ, UCC, 
there are traditionalist conservative factions that oppose the liberalism in their denominations, even if these factions only amount to about 10% of the whole denomination, that still means there are hundreds of conservative churches and even more members in each mainline denomination. Hundreds of pastors have unique experience fighting liberalism. PCUSA still has figures like Bruce Gore, whose views are nearly identical to the likes of Doug Wilson and the post-millennial crowd, except that Gore teaches at a beautiful historic church in Washington state. The Episcopal Church has many strongly traditionalist parishes that refuse to ordain women, and several conservative dioceses like Dallas and Central Florida. The strategy of Reconquista is not to launch an amphibious invasion of liberal churches from the outside. Rather, it is to migrate to existing allied fortresses within them. Reconquista explicitly advocates against sending sheep into churches pastored by wolves. In his critique, Derrida claims the main lines are, quote, not the legitimate heirs to their great Western traditions, end quote. In a sense, he is correct, but he misses the greater picture of what it means to inherit a tradition. He is right in saying that the mainline churches usually do not inherit the theological convictions of the traditions they are named after due to the rampant apostasy of leaders within them. But despite not being legitimate heirs of their traditions, they have indeed captured such traditions. In the case of Germany's occupation of France during World War II, it is right to say that the German puppet government of France was not the legitimate heir to France. That does not mean, however, that loyal French exiles could have or should have just started a new France elsewhere. They would have needed to recapture their land to restore their heritage. Progressives currently occupy, illegitimately in this theological sense, the leadership of mainline denominations. So it is right to say they are not true heirs of their traditions. However, in order for those traditions to continue at all, Faithful believers must recapture the lost territory of the institutions that are under occupation. It is crucial to recognize the kingdom of God is not simply made out of individuals plus their ideas. Derrida seems to echo the ideas of radical two kingdoms, R2K, theologians, even though he does not hold to the R2K outlook in saying, quote, the church is primarily a spiritual body of the heavenly kingdom, end quote, and arguing from that perspective to say that earthly possessions of the mainline churches, such as historic buildings and brand names, do not ultimately matter. However, many in the Reformed tradition might dispute this. The church is the means by which the heavenly kingdom colonizes earth, so it does indeed start in heaven, but it does not end there. It is meant to permeate every area of earthly society. Thus, the accomplishments the church makes in and for the culture are invaluable and irreplaceable. In a real way, earthly possessions, the historic holdings, so to speak, of the church, do matter. Heritage matters. Buildings matter. And names matter. These things grip the imagination. They are testaments to God's work even if they have strayed or been acquired by hostile forces. Repossession of such heritage and property is not a ridiculous ambition. It is an ambition driven by justice, rootedness, tradition. Did the Crusaders desire any less in their efforts to recapture Jerusalem from Islam? Or is it just ironic, trad-memeing when triumphant, AI-generated images bearing the Templar cross circulate on Twitter? 
Derrida goes on to argue, referencing past conservative defeats, that a conservative victory in the main lines is utterly implausible. Contra Derrida, such losses can easily be explained by bad strategies that must be avoided going forward. The lesson is to learn from mistakes, not to abandon hope. There are three primary reasons as to why these conservative factions have failed to win over their denominations. One, retreatism. There's a common theme in all denomination splits. They always split into original and conservative. Whenever conservatives lose a denominational battle, they split off and form a new denomination. Whenever liberals lose a battle, they double down and fight harder. The clearest example of this was the recent United Methodist split, if it can even be called such. In 2019, the conservatives had a victory with the UMC narrowly voting against same-sex marriage. The progressives responded with a firm commitment to stay in the denomination and fight for their agenda. Seeing that they had a robust battle plan, hundreds of conservative churches panicked and split off to form the Global Methodist Church, despite having won the vote, being forced to pay the UMC gobs of money to add to their humiliation. Conservatives tend to split off over what they fear might happen whereas liberals will stay and fight despite having already lost battles. The result of this has been progressives conquering almost every major cultural institution, whether universities, churches, or media. 2. Complacency Despite painting themselves as tough stoics and painting liberals as sensitive snowflakes, conservatives are often far more timid in speaking up and getting involved in high positions to make change than progressives. Progressives are far more likely to make a stink, protest aggressively, and strike fear into the hearts of their opponents than conservatives. They are also far more likely to get involved in leadership committees and administration. In any given denomination, the conservative factions try to sound moderate and avoid being offensive out of fear of retribution, while the progressive factions use the most charged and shocking rhetoric possible and constantly push the boundaries. 3 libertarianism. Both inside and outside the church, progressives tend to demand everyone agree with them, whereas conservatives merely demand the freedom to believe and do as they please. This causes moderates to feel far more pressured to appease the progressives. Conservatives hope that moderates will be won over by their fairness and sympathize with them. But in most cases, the moderates will simply try and satisfy the loudest complainers. Conclusion. If progressives could hijack Christian denominations, then Christians can re-hijack progressive denominations unless God's soldiers are somehow weaker than a few old liberals. Given that there are hundreds of faithful pastors left in the main line and that heretics have stolen what was created for God's glory, Reconquista is absolutely both plausible and necessary. And that is Richard Ackerman's view. He looks like a young guy from his pick at the bottom of the AmericanReformer.org article I just read for you. It says here he is a confirmed member of the PCUSA and a Christian internet influencer going by Redeemed Zoomer on Instagram and YouTube. And that is the end of his article. Now, what do we think of this? What do we make of it? A couple of thoughts. One, whether it is possible to reconquer depends a great deal on whether we believe it's ever right to conquer in the first place. To reconquer implies that it's a good thing to conquer at all. And the biggest barrier 
the most significant barrier to reconquering, reclaiming institutions, even explicitly Christian institutions, churches, denominations, Christian colleges, Christian universities, Christian publishing companies, the Christian family. The single biggest barrier is that we don't believe, many of us, that it was good that we ever had claim to these things in the first place. Speaking of old Gnostic heresies being presented in this Amazon Prime show, Has Been Hotel, a lot of us have the view that we're actually the bad guys. And I think on some level, we've accepted a line of thought which ultimately would accuse God of being the worst offender. In short, because we don't believe that it's good when God's people win, when they stand their ground, when they conquer, when they lay claim, when they wield authority, have authority in the first place, but wield authority. If we lose all of that, a whole lot of us are just sure that that is actually better. It's morally superior. Why? Because they've also accepted that it was evil for those things to have been in our possession in the first place. There's an ambivalence sometimes, but I think it's masquerading. I think that the ambivalence, the ho-hum, oh, I don't think it's even possible, in many, many cases disguises an underlying rejection of what it is that God told people to do, Old Testament and New Testament, that was assertive and it was proactive and it was aggressive. We reject that that was good. And where do we get the idea that that would not be good? Where does that come from? Well, I think it comes from much, much, much more subtle expressions of, at root, the same claim, the same narrative being spun out by Amazon's new show, Has Been Hotel. We are made to sympathize with the devil because cowardice is spiritualized, but then cowardice is spiritualized and courage is stigmatized and made to look villainous because at root, many of us imagine we would end up like Jehu or whatever reclaiming of lost institutions would end up like Jehu's reign in Israel anyways. It would just circle back to the same problem sooner or later. But then maybe that's to say, when we look around and when we look in the mirror, a lot of us, whether we're thinking of Jehu specifically, have the same misgivings about those around us in the church, even the most staunch conservatives. And we have the same misgivings about ourselves that we feel when we read about Jehu. And what do I mean by that? Well, simply, Starting in verse 28 again, let me reread for you the last two paragraphs of 2 Kings chapter 10. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Okay, so far so good. But, (laughs) you knew there was going to be a but, in part because we already read this, but also because we're expecting a but. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. In some sense, Jehu was being a conservative the kind of conservative that we are all too familiar with today. And I mean that. Let that sink in for a moment. The issue with Jehu is that he conserved the golden calves. They were useful to keeping Israel from going back to 
the descendants of David. And even if it was just a tradition, it was a tradition that didn't seem like it was causing too much in the way of issues. At least it wasn't as bad as the worship of Baal. We already dealt with the worship of Baal. So pat yourself on the back. But this is the sticking point for conservatism. What are you conserving and why? And are some of the things that you might be tempted to conserve or told you have to conserve, you can't purge those, you can't get rid of those, actually just yesteryear's progressivism. See also, for a very contemporary example, David French evolving on the question of gay marriage, wringing his hands publicly and encouraging all American evangelicals to join him in the wringing of the hands at the idea that so-called marriage equality, so-called gay marriage would be thrown out even just a few years after Obergefell v. Hodges. Why? Because he's got neighbors in his neighborhood who are gay couples who think that they're married and it would be very upsetting to them. Oh, yeah, well, we wouldn't want to hurt their precious feelings. But where was all your argumentation (laughs) expecting to leave these gay couples before Obergefell v. Hodges? Or had you thought that far ahead? David French now sings a very different tune. But he thinks he's still a conservative, it seems. And a lot of Christians, a lot of Republicans are in the same boat. They get all worked up about the woke stuff and the CRT and the after-school Satan Club and even has-been hotel because it's the latest show of godlessness in our country. It's the latest expression of lawlessness in our country. It's the latest shocking example of depravity and a kind of death cult that ultimately at root loves death because it hates God. But then the coalition formed has all the same vulnerabilities of the neoconservative fusionist response to communism that, yes, led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and then was rather listless and not sure what to do next. I guess just enjoy the good times or whatever. Once the Soviet Union had collapsed, once the Berlin Wall had fallen, the question was, well, now what? And when it turned out that the coalition that had been formed around opposing communism, particularly the Soviet variety, the Russian variety of communism, when it turned out that that coalition included people who were very much not interested in a smaller government with more individual private liberty, when it turned out that a lot of the people who had been opposed to communism were actually very much in favor of conserving Roe v. Wade and maybe even codifying it, expanding access to abortion rather than outlawing abortion. When it turned out that a lot of the anti-communists were content for the public schools to be more and more secular, but really just propagandizing for an alternative cosmology in the form of Darwin's theory of natural selection, evolution by natural selection, instead of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it turned out that a whole lot of the neoconservatives were not at all interested in doing some cleanup work on divorce laws, for instance, and that even Ronald Reagan, the great communicator who had been so important in bringing about the collapse of the Soviet Union, was, if you look back at the history the governor of California, who signed into law no-fault divorce, the first no-fault divorce laws in the country, 
the definition of what it meant to be a conservative shifted tremendously. And it's done so in various other ways, in various other situations, on various other issues. Since then, that wasn't the first time it had happened, but it's done a tremendous amount of harm to what kinds of coalitions we've formed ever since, for all the same reasons that it introduced a great deal of instability and insecurity and a lack of conviction in Reagan's administration, in Reagan's movement. We are right to be uncomfortable with the kind of unity we have, even as so-called conservatives and even so-called conservative Christians today, because it is reasonable to suppose that a Jehu type, a Jehu-like figure in America who would drive out the worship of Baal, insert here, wokeness or DEI or critical theory, codification of Roe v. Wade, gay marriage, a Jehu who would drive out even just the wokeness would be very content, having accomplished that, to be largely irreligious and to be answering on a survey, none, when asked what their religion is. Verse 30, 2 Kings chapter 10. And Yahweh said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And that's where you get also credible, reasonable concerns about, say, for instance, Donald Trump and what kind of a moral example he is setting and what kind of a personal profession of faith he makes. If there's some God talk in there, but it's not wholehearted, and when asked about if he's ever repented of anything, he acts nonplussed, like, what would I ever have to repent of? No, I don't regret anything I've ever done. It's reasonable for us to suppose that on the other end of overturning a globalist agenda or the wokeness, what we would find is a new agnosticism mixed with a little bit of Christian verbiage. And maybe, just maybe, the best we hope for now is to be free ourselves to exercise our own Christian faith, to live it out. And that's something, right? That's not nothing. It's certainly not. But then, even just within the church, we're talking here about Richard Ackerman's article at American Reformer. And so even within the context of the church, the reason a lot of conservative Christians just go off and form their own new denomination or start a new church somewhere else instead of standing their ground, I think is because they look in the mirror and they look around and they see it would be a lot of hard work. It would be messy business to start systematically removing from positions of leadership those who did bow the knee to Baal, who did kiss the image of Baal. Now, in the case of Jehu, you have him straight up killing everybody who was involved in the worship of Baal or in the administration of Ahab's regime in Israel. But let's just put aside all talk of killing for a moment. You'll be relieved to hear me say that, I'm sure. Let's just talk in terms of removing people from positions of authority who have been complicit in the woke business. I know personally, in my own circles, you start talking about how this or that person's favorite pastor, 
favorite Christian author, has been complicit in promoting liberalism, trying to mix in liberal theology, and they've been trying to propagate essentially leftism, essentially cultural Marxism. They've been trying to infuse that into even conservative Christian Bible studies, sermons, church polity. You start talking about some of the very, very concerning concessions that they've made publicly and insisted that everybody needs to make along with them or else you're either not a Christian at all or you're a very weak Christian. You start talking about how maybe we shouldn't be encouraging everybody to read that book. Maybe we shouldn't be having Bible studies around this conference or this convention or this project. And you realize very quickly how committed to those leaders, however compromised they are, the people you like, love, care for, most have become and are and probably will be for quite some time. And what's so interesting, if you look back in church history, you look at, say for instance, the violent persecution in the Roman Empire of Christians and how there were men who were actually pastors, they were bishops, they were lay people, and they recanted, they denied the faith so that they wouldn't be tortured, they wouldn't have their property seized, they wouldn't lose their job, they wouldn't be thrown in prison, they wouldn't be martyred. When the crisis of the moment passed and there no longer was that threat hanging over them, this was a big controversy, this was a big debate, what to do with those men who had recanted, who had denied the faith when they were threatened. Should they be welcomed back into the church? Should they be allowed to take communion with those who did not recant? Should they be allowed to hold offices and positions of authority again in the church? This was a big debate. And it was a big debate for all the same reasons that it's so uncomfortable now when you start talking about reclaiming or recapturing institutions. Because people start thinking in ways that mix thoroughly principled considerations with pragmatic considerations. Yeah, what's that going to cost? What will we lose if that person is no longer listened to? If that person is no longer heading up this ministry or is even a pastor or a director or a manager or superintendent or bishop or presbyter or elder or whatever, fill in the blank. You start asking those questions of what would we lose, right? Oh, there are so many people who like him. There are so many people who read him. There are so many people who have found his work helpful or his sermons to be encouraging, or he had some really good things to say about this or that or the other thing. You start talking along very pragmatic lines, and at a certain point, we can't even tell the difference between which of our considerations are pragmatic and which of our considerations are principled. And so then you don't just have a question of, is it plausible and necessary, you have the question of, is it good? Would it be good for us to reclaim churches that have been seized by liberal theology, a false gospel? Well, they still think they're Christians. They still think that pastor, that highly positioned, well-respected leader is a Christian. They don't know that that's not correct. They don't know that that's error. They don't know that that's heresy. We shouldn't say things that would upset them that would offend them. Never mind, you know, forget entirely about Jehu straight up killing Ahab's family and friends 
everybody that was connected with making it possible for him to violently persecute worshipers of Yahweh, the prophets of Yahweh in Israel. All we're talking about all of a sudden is a negotiation over whether to keep the golden calves on the other end. And actually, if we even get as far as purging the worship of Baal, I mean, that's debatable. But if we get as far as that, those golden calves, they're very useful. They're very practical. They serve a very important function in our legacy as a people, our traditions. We don't want to lose those. They're very familiar to us. They're comforting to a lot of people. Yeah, you know, don't take it too seriously. I, I don't think anybody else except those worshipers of Baal ever took the golden calf seriously. It was just kind of a symbol. Yeah, it was a symbol of idolatry. It was a symbol of the same rebellion that the people of Israel engaged in when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the tablets of stone written on by the finger of God Almighty himself with the Ten Commandments. That's what it's a symbol of that you're conserving. That's what it is that you're so nervous about losing people if you discard. And in just this way, in just this way, the conversation shifts. The conversation Richard Ackerman wants to have, young guy that he is, not to talk down to him at all, is centered on can we, should we, based on could we actually be more pure in our expression of faith? Would it be more faithful to God? The conversation that will greet Richard Ackerman and the type Richard Ackerman appears to be from reading his response to Philip Derrida here, the conversation he will be forced to have instead of the conversation he wants to have is going to be a question of, will that be nice? Will that upset people? Will that cause a lot of people who (laughs) have been convinced by false teachers and blind guides and hirelings that this is what Jesus was really getting at? This was his truest, deepest heart, to be a liberal, to be a progressive. Or if not that, if you can't do that, to be neutral. You know, what's fascinating about Jehu is he does not mess about with regards to the household of Ahab or the worship of Baal in Israel. And that's great. And God himself tells us what the mind of God is regarding what Jehu did on those two points. Because you have done well, I repeat, you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes. That is to say, God looks at what Jehu did in those two respects to purge everybody connected with Ahab from Israel and to purge the worship of Baal from Israel. God looks at that and says, that's right, that's good. There's a reward in store for you. And to the fourth generation, your descendants will sit on the throne. We're still stuck on the kind of conversation that Jehu is having with the people of Jezreel. Really, that's where we're at. The conversation he has with the people, not the elders, because wouldn't you know it, when it's just hirelings who are out for themselves, self-promoting, they'll be very happy to help you with removing whoever it is that you say you want removed. But then, interestingly, they also need to be removed because they're not the doers of justice. They're not the lovers of mercy. They're not the men who walk humbly with their God. They also need to be removed or at least shown to be completely untrustworthy. And so what does Jehu do? He uses the heads of the 70 descendants of Ahab as an object lesson in how what he has done is nothing compared to what the guardians of these sons were willing to do 
just the curry favor with Jehu, which is to say that they actually really don't care about any of you either. We're still stuck in that sort of a calculation. And until we can get past that sort of a calculation, which is entirely pragmatic, it's not principled. We say it's principled, but it's not principled. It's pragmatic. It's what's useful, what's expedient from a community standpoint. It's conservative after a fashion, but it's conservative like David French worrying about the gay couple who lives next door and how they would feel about being told your marriage is not actually recognized as valid. It's conservative like that. That's where we're at right now. And you have some people who are, yes, still very concerned about what is going on in the civil magistrate sphere, but they're thinking very near term. There's a sense of urgency. There's an existential crisis quality to our verbiage and our language and what you see the commentators saying. This could be the end of our democracy. This could be the end of America as we know it. This is how democracy dies, with thunderous applause. But in the church, there's the thought along very similar lines. We're concerned about the near-term, immediate issue of, can I function? Not, is this Christ's church and is Christ's church honoring him in this instance? Now, don't get me wrong. I have been a deacon at a church, for instance, where at a certain point after serving a two-year term, I said, I can't in good conscience serve another two years because the elders were unwilling to address and talk about sin and disobedience, wickedness that needed to be confronted and repented of in the church among the families of those who were actually at the highest levels in positions of authority in that church, because that wasn't something that could be addressed. It wasn't being addressed. And I was being leaned on to be disobedient. I resigned and we left. And at a certain point, all I was thinking about was, does God still want me here? And maybe that's the overarching question we need to be asking. Look in scripture. Does God still want us to be in these denominations, in these churches, which it's being claimed can be reclaimed? It's being claimed they can be reconquered with right doctrine, sound doctrine, teaching only accords with what is sound doctrine? Does God want us in those individual churches, in those denominations, in those institutions? If the answer is yes, then however uncomfortable it is, however unpleasant it is, you stay there and you keep on being faithful until God releases you. Now, on that point, sometimes, and we see this with Elijah, sometimes God has his representatives deliver a message and leave. Say, for instance, even in 2 Kings chapter 9, there's the son of the prophet who's sent by Elisha, successor to Elijah the Tishbite, to anoint Jehu king over Israel. Even as Joram is currently king, Jehu is anointed, and it's God who says, I have anointed you. But then what does Elisha tell the son of the prophet, this young man who's going to go and anoint Jehu? When you have finished telling him what you're supposed to tell him, when you've finished anointing him, king over Israel, telling him, Yahweh says, I have anointed you, king over Israel, open the door and flee. Do not linger. What that tells me is that sometimes God does not want us to stay. God does not want us to linger. Your job is to deliver the message and be faithful for as long as you're there. And if God has said that should not be long, then it should not be long. The question we have to answer one way or the other is from Scripture or the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance in our individual lives, does God want us to reconquer? 
or does he want to abolish and destroy and make new? Now, we know ultimately at the very end, he will do the latter thing. He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth and make a new heavens and a new earth. And that's going to be glorious. And between now and then, I'm convinced from reading scripture, from reading history, from what I've observed, I'm convinced that sometimes God works in the one way and sometimes he works in the other way. And we have to go to him and we have to be diligently searching the scriptures to see when it's the one and when it's the other. When does he want us to go? When does he want us to stay? What does he want us to be doing and saying and being about to be faithful witnesses? Because we can't reclaim anything. We can't reconquer anything if we ourselves are not being obedient to God. We may, like Jehu, otherwise find that we have driven out the false worship and nothing of obedience to Yahweh, right worship, is resumed. And what kind of reconquest is that? What kind of reclaiming institutions is that? Lots to think about, lots to pray about, lots to continue studying, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. Matt props to Richard Ackerman, young guy, for writing an article like this. It does take courage to say these sorts of things. Hopefully, we will hear more from him in the future as he continues exploring this topic. As we continue exploring this topic, ultimately, we need to be going to Scripture and going to God in prayer and presenting our requests to him with prayer and thanksgiving, making our requests known to him and not being anxious for anything, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.